much. Let's uh, open up with a, a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you have made yourself known to us so that we don't have to guess about these things. That you have shown a light in front of our feet and there is a path that we can walk in. And so, Father, I just pray that you would open up our eyes so that we can see. And even now, as we look at your word and look at the very difficult issue of transgenderism, I pray that you would help us to think your thoughts after you and as a result to love our neighbors and to love you more. So Father, we ask all of these things because these are things we cannot do ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've... Uh, been writing and, and talking about transgenderism for a number of years now. I do it a lot, and as a result of, of that, I hear back from people from time to time. And a couple of years ago, I got a letter, an actual letter in the mail from a family, a mother and a father who are parents of a transgender child. And um, I wanted to share a little bit from this letter. And it's, it's kind of longish, but I think it might help us to uh, listen to their story and to frame the rest of what I'm going to say in light of, of what they say here. But I, I've uh, kind of edited it a little bit so that it will preserve their anonymity and, and make it more uh, clear. So this is what this uh, mother, writing on behalf of her and her husband, this is what she wrote to me. She said, Dear Pastor Burke, in the 1970s, I gave birth to a beautiful baby. Because of the appearance of the baby's anatomy, my husband and I could see, particularly the baby's genitals, we raised this baby as a boy. We gave a boy name. We bought boy toys and clothes and treated this child the same as we treated our other son, born several years earlier. As this child grew, my husband and I noticed that the person we thought of as our son preferred the company of girls, although boys were not avoided. As our child grew into adolescence, we began to see signs that things were not as they seemed. When our child was in high school, we found wigs and feminine clothing. In college, our child grew long hair, began taking feminine hormones, ordered over the internet, and informed us that she wanted to live as a female. We were shocked and horrified. At the time, we were active members of a large Southern Baptist church. I happen to be a Southern Baptist. I think that's why she was writing me, in part. We were members of a large Southern Baptist church. I knew this wouldn't be accepted. Two years before this, our oldest son had been killed in an accident. I remember asking God why I had to lose my second son, since I had already lost my first one. My husband and I set out to learn all we could about gender dysphoria, transgender, and transsexualism. We read books, medical journals, articles, neurology studies, fetal development studies, and more. The literature helped us to understand the emerging science that is beginning to explain how a person can be born with the genitalia of one sex, but the brain of another. Almost everything we read had indicated to us that our child suffered from a biological condition, a type of birth defect, not a psychological condition. And this condition was not going to go away without medical treatment. Several years passed, our child had a successful career and a good marriage. But eventually, the stress of living as a male became too much. She 
resigned from her job, ended her marriage, and began the process of transitioning fully to female. She and her ex-wife are friends, and her ex-wife is supportive and understanding of her need to transition. Fortunately, because of her successful career, our daughter had been able to accumulate the funds to pay for the expensive surgeries necessary for her to fully transition. Surgeries that health insurance rarely pays for. She had facial feminization, plastic surgery, and sex reassignment surgery a year after that. She has changed her name and sex on all her documents and is now legally and physically female. She is finally free of the periodic depression and suicidal thoughts that have plagued her much of her life. And I've realized that I did not lose another child. She is the same person we've always known, just happier, freer. It was a result of our time spent on the internet researching beliefs and attitudes about transgender and transsexualism that we came across your work, including the Southern Baptist Resolution on Transgender Identity of 2014 and your talk at a, a conference I spoke at. From what we have read and heard of your ideas, we don't believe that you have adequately researched the science of sex and gender. We strongly urge you to learn more about the science of sex, gender, and fetal development. I want you to listen to this. We have nothing to disagree with you on your idea that God created them male and female, and that because of sin, suffering, and death entered into creation. What we strongly disagree with and pray you will reconsider is that the best way to deal with this condition of gender dysphoria is to oppose the medically accepted treatments of cross-sex hormone therapy and sex reassignment surgery. We believe that my daughter is and always has been female. The most important human sex organ, her brain, was created to be female. She was born with the wrong genitals, and that has been surgically corrected. The scriptures were never meant to be a science textbook. They tell us that God created them male and female, but the scriptures are silent on exactly what biological factors determine who is male and female. Scripture writers knew nothing of chromosomes, hormones, brain structures, therefore they did not address them. You have chosen without any scriptural authority that I can find to prioritize genital anatomy over brain structure and function in determining sex and gender. Our concern with your teachings is not merely an intellectual one. Our overwhelming concern is the, su the suffering it will cause in the lives of Southern Baptist transgender youth and their families. The life of a person suffering from gender dysphoria is not easy, but it's made much more difficult by the uninformed, misinformed, and uneducated opinions of powerful people. There is somewhere, someone in a Southern Baptist family who will not receive the scientifically based, medically recommended treatment for their gender dysphoria because of what you, a leader in the SBC, wrote and said. This medical neglect will put them at risk for depression and even suicide. I've lost a child and there's no pain that compares to that. Could you live with knowing that your resolution opposing appropriate medical treatment of gender dysphoria led to the suicide of someone's precious child? Pastor Burke, read the Bible by all means, but also read the science. Throughout history, Christians have been able to reconcile science and faith. Most of us no longer shun medicine and only lay hands on or anoint the sick with oil, although some may do those things in addition to modern medicine. Just as the children of the sects that shun modern medicine in favor of faith healing die at a much higher rate than those who accept modern medicine alongside their faith, transgender youth and families that shun medical treatment for gender dysphoria are more likely to become homeless, the victims of violent crime, 
and die of suicide than those who receive appropriate medical treatment. My husband and I don't think you want that on your conscience. Sincerely, parents of a transgender child. And so that's how the letter ends. She shares this narrative of what can only be described as devastating loss and heartbreaking turmoil for for her family. After she shares all this, she draws the the lesson from her and her, her child's suffering. And the lesson is this. The Bible is insufficient to deal with the kinds of turmoil and the kinds of suicidal depression that people experience, like my child. If you insist that the Bible can meet our needs when science leads us in a different direction than the Bible, then you have blood on your hands. You are responsible for the death of suffering people, like my child, because you've held out to the Bible. Now, I'm not reading you this letter because it's just some kind of a one-off thing that guys who talk about transgender a lot hear about, okay? I'm reading this to you because this is the kind of pushback that is coming your way very soon, if it hasn't already. This is a conflict that all of us who are followers of Christ are going to have to face as Christians. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is how are we going to respond in the face of that kind of conflict? Now, I hope our first response wouldn't be outrage, but heartbreak. I don't know how you read a story like this mother just narrated in your heart not break for her. She's got a dead child and she's got a depressed child and one who feels the only way to relieve his own suffering is to transition to uh, another gender. And I think we need to feel the weight of the pain that this mother has described. And as Christians, we need to feel the same urgency to help children like this and to relieve suffering. So I think on that much, we stand in solidarity with the mother. But we still have a conflict, don't we? No matter how much we empathize and no matter how much we care about the suffering that people are going through, who are experiencing gender identity conflicts, no matter how much we we feel compassion towards that, there is an insistence in the culture today that we have to address that distress in a certain way, in a way that is out of step with what the Christian faith teaches. And even if we have all the compassion in, in the world, none of that will be enough for those who believe that the word of God is harmful to people who are struggling with gender identity issues. In other words, it's not going to be enough that we want to relieve this child's suffering. We must also agree how that suffering is to be alleviated, even if that remedy disagrees with Scripture, and that's our conflict. So the title of my talk uh, this morning is The Transgender Test, because there are Um, things that we are facing as Christians that really we haven't had to think about before. And and frankly, I'm not sure that we've thought our way through to biblical clarity as evangelical Christians. People are all over the place. And it's a real test for us because, because popular opinion is moving against God's word when it comes to gender issues. The dogmas of modernity and of the sexual revolution are coming home to roost 
in our lifetimes. So that for Christians to oppose those dogmas with the Word of God, those alternate stories that Jim was talking about this morning, those alternate meta-narratives, if you oppose those with a different story, with a different meta-narrative, that doesn't make us just wrong. In the eyes of many, it renders us haters and, and bigots, people who should be banished to the margins of polite society. And so this is a real test for us because the stakes are so high socially. Who wants to be banished to the cultural margins? Are we going to love and care for hurting people in the way that Jesus tells us to do it? Or are we going to collapse under the pressure of those who hate the way that Jesus has told us to do it? And this conflict that I'm describing is made even more acute by the fact that Christians aren't merely contending with secular culture over these things. In many ways, we're contending with one another. Even within the evangelical movement, we're not all on the same page when it comes to thinking about gender issues. And now we're kind of on our heels that this transgender challenge has come up. Um, many of you, some of you may have seen the book that came out in 20, uh, 2015 by Mark Yarhouse. Um, it's called uh, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Now, I've been helped with, by many of Mark Yarhouse's writings on homosexuality and, and, and other things. But he wrote a book on, which is basically about transgenderism. And it's perhaps the most comprehensive response to the transgender question by somebody in the evangelical movement. Okay? So it's within, within the ranks. Um, this made Yarhouse the go-to guy on transgenderism. When Caitlyn Jenner made the transition that we all witnessed so publicly... Christianity Today, Christian Mark Yarhouse to write the, the uh, cover story uh, for their issue. Um, when the Gospel Coalition website reviewed Mark Yarhouse's book, they said it marks a step forward in Christian engagement with gender issues. And yet, when you read the book, Yarhouse leaves open the door for transgender children to cross-dress, adopt cross-gender names, Gender reassignment surgery as one available treatment option for gender dysphoric adults. And it goes on and on and on. And so this is not just a problem where people out there are confused. So many people in our pews are confused about these things. And we're not all speaking with one voice. And I want to say we're not all speaking with a biblically faithful voice on these things. And we have got to do better than this. But before I get into the heart of, uh, of my argument for, for the rest of my talk here, I just want to clarify and define a couple of terms here just to make sure we're all on the same page. When I use the word transgender, transgender is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. So their, their biology, their reproductive anatomy is saying one thing, but their mind is saying something else. Their biological anatomy may be saying male, but their mind is saying female or vice versa. And so transgenderism is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. Until recently, the psychiatric community uh, considered this to be a disorder, okay? And when I say recently, I mean 2013, okay, practically yesterday. But in 2013, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the fifth edition of that book, um, removed this experience from its list of disorders and replaced it with a term that you've perhaps heard, and this is the second term I wanted to find, gender dysphoria. How many of you have heard that term before this talk? Okay, gender dysphoria. 
So they didn't like the term gender identity disorder because it made it seem if, you, if there's something out of sync between what you feel yourself to be in your body, there's a problem with that. And they said, we don't want to say that there's a problem with that necessarily. But if you feel bad about it, you have dysphoria, which is the op- opposite of euphoria. It means you're experiencing mental distress. So if you're out of sync and you have some kind of mental distress because of that, then that's what the psychiatric community wants to, to treat. They just want to try to relieve the distress, but there's nothing wrong with it being out of sync, just the fact that you feel bad about it. And so all treatment options are aimed at trying to make you not feel, feel bad about it. And so this is a relatively new issue, transgenderism, and we've got all these different terms floating around that confuse people, but it's making us confront some really old questions. And it's once again a test for us. And I want to say... The transgender challenge is, is presenting us with three different tests, okay? And this is what I'm going to talk about for the remainder of the time. It's, it's giving us a test of biblical authority. It's giving us a test of biblical message. And it's giving us a test of biblical relevance. And I'm going to walk through this and hopefully we'll understand this issue a little bit better from a biblical perspective. But the first test is the test of biblical authority. And I'll just refer you to um, 1 Timothy excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, very familiar texts. The Apostle Paul says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So our fundamental conviction as Christians, our starting point, is that we believe God has spoken to us in a book, in the scriptures. That's, that's what we believe. We believe, Paul says here, that Scripture is breathed out by God. And the the term that Paul uses here to refer to Scripture, that it's breathed out by God, is a term that's not used anywhere else in Greek literature until Paul used the term right here, which means Paul made up a word to, to describe what Scripture is. It's breathed out by God. It's the nature of Scripture. And so what Paul means is it's the very word of God. That means when Scripture speaks, God speaks. The authority of Scripture, therefore, is nothing less than a shorthand for the authority of God. It's His voice and His words, so it's His authority when when we encounter every word of Scripture that we read. If you have a Bible, you have the Word of God, and its teaching is sufficient for all your needs. What it says is always true, it's always right, it's always, get this, good for you. It makes you equipped for every good work. It's not bad for you. It's always good for you. Why? Because God's the one who said it. And yet this authority is called into question by the transgender challenge. And I'm just going to give you one way that evangelicals are wrestling through this by referring back uh, to Mark Yarhouse in his book that came out in 2015, Understanding Gender Dysphoria. He, di- he distinguishes three different frameworks for thinking about transgenderism and the issue of gender dysphoria. He says there's three different frameworks that people kind of look at this. And then he kind of evaluates what those three different frameworks are. The first framework is the one you and I would probably most identify with. He calls it the integrity framework. And he says this is the lens or the perspective of Scripture. It emphasizes God's creational intent for male and female And so people look at gender identity uh, issues in terms of the integrity framework and they see that it's out of sync with scripture and they see that there's something wrong here, okay? That's one way to look at this issue. Another way to look at this issue is the disability framework. 
And according to this framework, this views gender dysphoria as a result of living in a fallen world in which the condition, like so many other mental health concerns, is just a non-moral reality. So if you're experiencing gender identity issues, that's, it, it has the same moral significance for you personally that, you know, getting cancer has. Getting cancer is bad. It's a result of living in a fallen world, but it's not, you're not culpable. There's no moral implication for you in, in, in getting sick that way. That's the disability framework. It's just seeing, look, somebody is not feeling well, and so we just need to try to figure out how to alleviate that pain. It's not a moral issue. It just is. The third framework is the diversity framework. He views, and this diversity framework views transgender issues as something to be celebrated, honored, and revered. The diversity framework is kind of the spirit of the age because it's good to have diversity. And so expressions of gender, even ones out of sync with biological sex, those are also good. It's just another expression of diversity in the world and we celebrate diversity. And even to a certain extent, Christians would want to celebrate uh, diversity. So he says the diversity framework helps the conservative Christian understand some of the limitations of more conservative scripts for gender identity and roles. That's a quotation from the book. And so what he says is, is what we've got to do is, is we've, got to not, we've got to stop focusing on only the integrity framework and view this issue from the disability and diversity frameworks as well into what he calls an integrated framework. And because of the integrated framework, once you... Take the, uh, the integrity framework and you put the other two frameworks next to it, you can see that sometimes we just need to treat these things to make people feel better, to relieve their distress. And if nothing else works but cross-dressing helps, then you can do that. Even um, surgeries are left on the table as pro possible treatment op options. So um, this is, he even says, you know, if, if you've got a child a little boy who feels, who's having gender identity concerns, and if he feels, there's no other way to relieve his distress. Maybe it'll help him to wear female underwear or, or to adopt a female name. You can lead him to do that. This is an evangelical response. This is a faithful response. So here's my question. This is why I say this is a test of um, biblical authority. If the integrity framework or if the perspective of Scripture were the chief perspective, would any of those management strategies even be on the table? Here's the bottom line. In churches and um, churches and in Christian ministries, when people come to us and when people are going to come to us with gender identity concerns, what are we going to tell them? As Christians, what are we going to tell them is best for them? Surgery? Cross-dressing? We are, either, we are either going to go with what the world is saying about these things, or we are not. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. I don't have time to do this now, but I would show you that um, if we had time, that the scriptures, the Old Testament sexual ethic, whatever, you, whatever else you want to say about the Old Testament laws concerning food laws and you know, uh, laws about the tabernacle and all these other things, whatever else you want to say about those things, the scripture's sexual ethic is carried right over into the New Testament, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The gender and sexuality concerns of Leviticus 18 are carried right into the New Testament. Paul quotes them directly, okay? So 
Here you have another sexuality issue or, or gender identity text in Deuteronomy, and it says no cross-dressing. Why? Because the sexual distinction at creation that Jim talked about this morning is to be preserved even in the way that we present ourselves and not to be obscured in the way that we present. You say, well, some of those distinctions between male and female in the way that we present are culturally encoded. That's exactly right. They are. They might change from culture to culture, but what does not change is that there is to be a distinction. And the intentional attempt to blur the distinction between the sexes and the way that you present, Scripture expressly forbids. If the integrity framework or if the perspective of Scripture were the first and most authoritative perspective, would any of these other treatment strategies even be on the table? They would not. So this is a test of biblical authority for us that we are going to have to answer. Listen, we want to help people who are navigating painful conflicts between their perceived gender identity and their biological sex. We're not denying that those people exist. We're not denying that those conflicts exist. We love those people. We feel compassion for them. We want to see them whole and well and walking with God through Christ. But we're not being loving and we're not being compassionate, nor are we leading them to Christ when we in any way diminish the authority of Scripture. And so this is our test. Are we going to balance the authority of Scripture against those other concerns? Or are we going to insist that Scripture stands over and sometimes against those other concerns? That's our test. If we're going to love God and if we're going to love our neighbor in this world, we're going to have to take his definitions of what love is. In our culture, love is defined simply as unconditional affirmation of whatever it is I think about myself. That is not a biblical definition of love. 1 Corinthians eleven six: love always rejoices with the truth. If you enable someone to do something that is self-destructive, both to their body and to their mind and to their soul, you are not loving them, even if they like it that you're affirming them. This is a, this is a test of biblical authority for us. Are we going to stand with Scripture when these other definitions of love and other definitions of what it means to be male and female come up and against, uh, against this word? It's a test of biblical authority. Secondly, quickly, it's a test of biblical message. And I want you to look at another text from Paul's uh, writings to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to show you something really quick here that I think is really important. Uh, Paul is addressing false teachers and he says this. He's talking about false teachers. He says, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now take a look at what Paul just said there because this relates directly to these gender identity conflicts that I'm talking to you about. You got some false teachers who are saying, guess what? You shouldn't get married and you shouldn't eat certain kinds of food. That's what these teachers were saying in the church. Marriage and food, certain kinds of food are bad. Okay. We don't know a lot about the false teaching, but we know that they're saying marriage and food is bad. What does Paul say? God said he created these things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. 
The false teachers are telling you to reject certain kinds of food and to reject marriage. But God made those things for us to, to enjoy, both of them. Therefore, the false teachers are wrong. Well, how do we know that? Paul says, verse 4, for everything created by God is good. Now, what text can you think of in the Bible where God talks about marriage and food and says that both of them are good? You just heard a message on it this morning. It's Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. What does God say throughout the days of creation after he creates? What would be food? It's good. What, is he, what does God say after he sees um, Adam and Eve come together? He create, what's he, what does he say after he creates man and woman? It's very good. The false teachers are saying marriage and food are bad. God said marriage and food are good. We're going to go with God. They're saying you have to abstain from these things. We're going to go with what God says. For it's sanctified by means of the word of God and by prayer. I love what Paul does here. He basically says, if you just read the Bible, if you just read Genesis 1, you know that what the false teachers are saying is not true. But look what he says. He says, everything created by God is good. And guess what's a part of that original creation? And it's implied in his affirmation of marriage. The distinction between male and female. Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness, Genesis 1.26 says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and all the rest. The original distinction between male and female, which was a biological designation because male and female coming together does what? It enables what Jim said this morning, reproduction. It's not, an, it's not a designation that has to do with your state of mind. It's a designation that has to do with your procreative capacity. It's about biological sex. That's what male and female is defined as in Genesis 1. God said it was good, that distinction. And Paul is now saying what he said is good. Guess who else said it was good? Jesus. Matthew 19. When he was defining the nature of marriage, he said, have you not read? In the very beginning, he made them male and female. And he quoted Genesis 1. What more do we need? The scripture is everywhere screaming that the difference between male and female is good. The complementary differences are good. If you read chapter 2 of Genesis, it says that their gender roles, as it were, are good within the first marriage. What does that mean? It means that there's a sexual complementarity embedded in God's good creation. But not only that, there is a gender complementarity that is also embedded into God's cre good creation. The bodily realities are complementary, and then the role um, identities are also complementary. The helper corresponding to Adam designates a gender role for Eve, a role that is inextricably linked to her biological sex. Adam's role as leader and protector and provider is inextricably linked to his biological sex. What does that mean? It means that God has so made the world that there is a normative, holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. I need to say this again. If you don't take anything else from this talk, please take this. There is a normative, holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. In a fallen world, sometimes those things feel they're out of sync, but God's original intent was for them to be in sync. Do you see that? The world is trying to get you to see that that connection is not normative and is not necessarily holy. 
It's just something that's cultural. You just, it's a social construct that you just learn from culture. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is teaching a normative, holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. There is a purpose in male and female bodies and male and female roles. This is a connection that God established in the Garden of Eden before there was any sin in the world. And God calls that connection very good. To deny that connection would be, by definition, not good. Yes, that connection is defaced and injured by the fall and by sin, but that connection is God's original creation intent. Uh, the letter that I read to you at the beginning of this talk was from a mother who believes that a person is transgender because their brain is hardwired to be a gender that doesn't match their biological sex. And so her letter reflects what psychologists call a brain sex theory. Okay, so there's d different theories for what calls transgenderism. You wouldn't know this if you're just paying attention to popular culture because popular culture is trying to say uh, you're born transgender. That's not true. <laughs> the, actually, the, the scientists, they don't, the theorists don't know what causes it and they don't know why people feel this and there are different theories. But one theory, only one theory, is called the brain sex theory. And it says that our brains script us toward male or female behaviors and dispositions. But sometimes our brain's gender doesn't match up to that of our biological sex. That's what they say. And when that's the case, a lot of these theorists and clinicians think that what a person thinks about him or herself should trump what God has revealed through their biological sex. So what a person perceives about their gender identity trumps what God's word reveals about the normative connection that God establishes between biological sex and gender identity. A connection that we've already seen is rooted in God's good creation. The severing of that connection is what makes transgender identities plausible to people in our culture. It's also what makes people think that they should resolve their gender identity conflict in a way that reshapes their body to conform to their thinking rather than reshaping their thinking to conform to their body. But we have to ask the obvious question, is that the right way to think of this? Why is the cultural assumption that you should reshape the body to conform to the thinking rather than reshaping the thinking to conform to the body? A couple years ago, I read about a 30-year-old woman in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's always had a fascination with blindness. She wasn't blind. She had totally healthy eyes. But she had this fixation with blind people. She wanted to be blind. And she said that since she was six years old, she always felt more comfortable at the thought of being blind. And she always felt like a blind person being trapped in a sighted person's body. And so she had a condition that has come to be known as body integrity identity disorder. Okay. She had a perception about herself at odds with the biological reality that she could see. And she had perfectly functioning eyes. Nevertheless, she wanted to be blind, but as an adult, she couldn't find the doctor to help her to be blind. No doctor wanted to help her until in 2006, she found a doctor to help her. She found a psychologist willing to help her, and over the course of many months, he gave her numbing drops for her eyes, followed by drops, I kid you not, of drain cleaner. And after about six months of this excruci excruciating treatment, she, she did finally go blind. And now she's blind. She can't see anymore. Now, most people hear that story and they conclude that her mind was at odds with the reality um, of her body. 
and that it's immoral and wrong to destroy healthy organs to accommodate her misperception about herself. That's what most people think when they hear that. We don't deny that she had a real desire to be blind. We don't. And that she was experiencing real distress. We don't deny that. We just believe that the best way to help remedy that distress is not by just giving her unconditional affirmation of what she thinks about herself and letting her destroy her eyes. We love her by telling her the best thing to do is not to destroy your eyes, but by restoring your mind, right? We believe the best way to remedy the distress is not by destroying healthy functioning body parts, but by restoring the mind. We want to resolve the distress in a way that doesn't harm her. Why do we treat gender identity conflicts any differently? Um, I could tell you story after story of this. There's, a, there's a, two stories of men who were, um, felt like one-legged men trapped in a two-legged man's body. Can't find the doctor to amputate their leg, so one guy shot himself in the leg with a shotgun, got rid of his leg. The other guy froze his leg off. Is it loving to affirm that perception that's at odds with the bodily identity? Why are we saying now that it's loving to do that for people who are dealing with gender identity conflicts? It's not a loving thing to do. But yet the prevailing mental health view is if that's the only thing that helps them, then we'll cut off body parts. I don't know if you guys saw National Geographic magazine late last year. It was all on transgender. The last picture almost a full-page picture of the cover story was of a 16-year-old. Um, well, in reality, it was a little, it was a girl. She was a minor child. And she had had a double mastectomy. And she was standing there with the skateboard in her hand and her shirt off. And she looked like a boy because she had, transi- she had transitioned and her parents had allowed her and she, they amputated healthy functioning body parts to help this girl transition to be a boy. I never would have imagined five years ago even that we would be publishing the naked mutilated bodies of young girls in our science magazines as an example of progress. I'm just trying to wake us up here. What is loving? Unconditional affirmation or speaking the truth. It's a test of biblical authority. It's a test of biblical message. If the mind is out of sync with the bodily reality, what is loving? To encourage people towards what God made them for? Or to indulge a misperception that is self-destructive? Final thing, and I'll do this quick, is a test of biblical relevance. 2 Timothy 3.16, 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible says that he gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. This says that he equips us for every good work through our knowledge of the scripture. Every good work, not some good works, not most good works, except those that works that you need to rely on science to give you. No, it says it equips us for every good work, for all the advances of science, and they do give, it does give us genuine contributions to knowledge, right? But the scripture equips us for every good work. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. 
The question is, do we believe that? Or we, do we only believe that until alternate sources of authority come up against the Scripture? That's the question. Is the Bible relevant to instruct us how to think about folks who are navigating gender identity conflicts? Is it okay just to wave off Scripture as some people do and say, well, the Bible's not a science textbook. It doesn't know anything about gender identity conflicts or chromosomes or whatever. Therefore, it can't help us with that. Are we really the first generation of Christians to deal with gender identity conflicts? I don't think so. Are we really going to believe that God left his people without resources to deal with these questions until the DSM-5 came out in 2013? I don't believe that. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. We know about God's good creation of male and female in his image. We know that even though that image has been marred by sin, he has made a way for us to get it all back through Christ. And we know that the grace of God revealed in Jesus in the scripture is sufficient for every broken heart, every gender identity conflict. And that is what we have for ourselves and that is what we have to offer others. It's a test of biblical authority, a test of biblical message, a test of biblical relevance. Are we going to believe in the scripture's authority and its message and its relevance as we think about these things? We're going to have to because guess what? The world's going to test you on this and they're going to make it, they're going to box you in. They're going to try to say you don't love me unless you abandon that perspective and meta narrative of scripture. The only way you can love me is by affirming what I feel about myself. And so we're going to have to learn how to love people in the truth. And we're going to have to learn to do it even when it's hard and even when it's not accepted. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would use your word to reshape our minds, to conform to the way that you have made us and made this world. Father, we want to love our neighbors. We want to speak in gentleness and in truth. We want to give words of life. And there's so much confusion. And there are people out there, and perhaps even in this room, with real life pain because of gender identity conflicts. And Father, I pray you just help us to be fruitful and to bear witness to what you've said, and that we would be able to help people to see Christ and to see what he has made them for. Father, I pray you'd help us to be clear in our own thinking so that we would know the difference between male and female and so that it would shape our understanding of our own lives and what you've called us to as men and women. So Father, we love you and we ask you to do all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So right now we are going to open the floor up to do a little bit of Q&A. I'm sure some of you have some really pressing questions and we don't have this kind of opportunity very often. So. We're going to have two microphones here. John, would you mind helping me kind of run around? And for those of you who come to this church, you know this is going to be like a reflection format service. If you have a question that you'd like to field to Denny, just raise your hand, and John and I will run over to you with a microphone. Just say what your name is and ask your question clearly, and then we'll let Denny answer it. So, there we go. Uh, my name is Haley, and... I have a friend who, uh, biologically, he's a male, but he identifies as a female, um, and he, go he goes by Fiona. Would it be loving to call him Ian or Fiona? Like, is yeah. it accepting that he yeah. wants to be a woman by calling him? That's a great question. It's, uh, the question is about what do we do with friends, neighbors, 
who've made some kind of a transition and they want you to call them by their new name. And I think the harder question really is the, is the pronouns, you know? And so um, I'm a person who thinks that my view on this is, um, is nuanced, okay? Um, there's two principles that, that I have on this. Number one is Ephesians 4.15, speak the truth in love. You're not authorized by God to speak in ways that are deceptive or that indulge deceptions, okay? So you have to speak the truth and you have to do it in love. The other one is, and so the other text on this is uh, what Paul says in Romans um, uh, 12, as far as it is up to you, be at peace with all men, be at peace with all people. So what does that mean? You put these two things together, it means you've got an obligation to speak the truth, knowing that sometimes truth is going to bring conflict. You've also got this other text that's telling you, you have a possibility for lots of different conflicts in your life, but as far as it's up to you, seek peace with all men. Okay, you got to do both things. What that means to me is is that sometimes we're not going to be able to indulge every request because of the obligation to speak the truth in love. But it also means we don't have to have a chip on our shoulder and try to look for conflict in this area at every, every, every possible opportunity. We just don't have to do that. So for instance, um, if, you're at, uh, if you're at work, I don't know, at school, are there any school teachers here? I always get this question, especially um, from public school teachers and administrators because this has become such an issue now in, in public schools. Um, how do we speak to children who are now cross-identifying? What are, what are we supposed to do? Um, I say, as far as you can, avoid the conflict. If you can avoid it, avoid it as much as you can. Don't use the pronouns. And usually if you're speaking to somebody in the second, you're saying you and y'all, where I'm from, you say y'all. Um, it's not gender specific and it usually works, works out. If you're referring to them in the third person, if you can avoid those, fine. Um, what I, I don't believe it's right to speak in a way that indulges the fiction. So if you can avoid it, great, but don't indulge the fiction. Um, there are going to be situations, though, where you don't know that person except for the name that they've given you. What else are you going to call them except what you know? That might, be, that might call for a situation where you're just going to use the name that you know. I think it's a different situation if um, somebody in your church who's been a Christian for 10 years says, I'm going to cross-identify. I want you to now call me by my new name. I think the church has a special obligation not to indulge that. So a different situation, I think, would call for a different response. Um, just in, in general, as you're interacting with the public, as far as you can, as far as it's up to you, try to live at peace with all men, and then speak the truth in love. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dave Wicker. And um, growing up, that was never anything I had even heard of. Uh, I think until maybe I was in college in the early mid 80s. So my question is, um, is it significantly more now as a social construct? Does the amount of people who are transitioning or, or struggling with this uh, match the media's uh, um, portrayal of how many and how widespread it is? I really, I don't know and I don't know anybody. I, I mean, I came to this because I don't know anything about it other than what I read in the media, largely. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, there's not a ton of evangelical resources on this. There, that's changing. Um, but there, you should get some more help in the form of books and things in the very near future. Um, I know the media's reality is very much a part of um, the propaganda effort. And what you're seeing kind of in popular culture is they're trying to, the propaganda effort is following in the footsteps of the normalization of homosexual, homosexuality and homosexual marriage. And so, um, so with homosexuality, the, the way that it progressed was, was to teach that this is an inborn trait that you're born with. And therefore, if you're born with it, it's natural and it's fixed and it's permanent. And to oppose it is therefore bad, okay? And so, therefore, since it's natural, we don't, we don't need to deny who people are, okay? And, but but same-sex orientation was treated as something that was more fixed and more something, you know, born this way. Um, they're trying to use that script to advance the transgender agenda. And so, a lot of what you hear in popular culture is, well, people are just born this way, it's who they naturally are. Um, and if you try to, if you don't recognize that identity, you're going to harm them. Now, I think it's actually true that a person's, a lot of people who experience same-sex attraction, it is a more of a fixed thing for many people. And many of them, they've, not all of them, but many of them felt it from the time, as long as they could remember. Just experientially, that is not the way that the transgender identities have worked. In fact, um, all these studies are out there. Um, children who experience gender identity conflicts um, as like pre-adolescent, pre, uh, pre-pubescent children who experience gender identity conflicts without any psychological intervention whatsoever. By the time they reach puberty, 80 to 90% of them resolve with no intervention at all. 80 to 90%. It's not fixed and unchanging. The population, it's just not, it's not comparable to the debate that we just had on the other, but the propaganda is trying to get you to think that it is. The science doesn't, the, the studies don't bear it out at all. And that's why I get outraged when I, when I was looking at the National Geographic and I see them taking children and putting them on hormone blockers, amputating healthy sexually, uh, sexual organs because of some perceived gender identity conflict. And 80 to 90% of them aren't going to feel that anymore after puberty. How cruel is that? This is kind of a, like a, a public health emergency. It's a Christian issue for us, right? But it's kind of a public health thing. It's really not good. And so I'm really concerned about this for, for the children because policies are being made that's going to affect them. Um, so, uh, so no, I, I don't think the propaganda that you hear is matching the realities. When you look at the science on transgenderism, um, it's, just to- it's just totally different. One other thing is, you're hearing in popular culture that brain sex theories are the reason that people are transgender. Their brain is hardwired to be female, but their body is male, or vice versa. That's not true. That's just one theory. And the scientific community actually does has it set. They don't know what, it, what causes it. They don't know. They just, the, the theories divide between nature and nurture. I'm not making this up. You can just go read it. It's in the DSM. It says it. So... Um, so what's happening in the popular culture is more propagandizing. Not only does it not reflect scripture, it doesn't even reflect science. Denny, this might be a good, good time to talk about your new initiative, the Council of Biblical Sexuality, and the, and the booklet you have out there. What was that? Said this first? might be a good idea to talk about your new initiative, the Council of oh, Biblical yeah, yeah. Sexuality, and the so booklets you have. So CBMW, Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, when it was founded by John Piper and, John, and Wayne Grudem back in 1987, 
the main issues were about a kind of a rising feminism within evangelicalism. And they were trying to say, look, we need to reassert what the scripture says about manhood and womanhood vis-a-vis roles in marriage and leadership in the church. And so those were kind of the main issues. Over the years, we've had, as the sexual revolution has unfolded in the culture, the issues are changing. And questions about manhood and womanhood are not just about roles in the home or leadership in the church. It's what is a man? What is a woman? So probably 80 to 90% of the calls that we get for conferences like this, they're not asking us about those older issues that we addressed in 87, but about transgenderism, homosexuality, these other things that are related but weren't uh, uh, originally addressed when our, our foundational document called the Danvers Statement was, was invented. And so what we're working on right now with this new initiative within CBMW, we're calling it a Coalition for Biblical Sexuality. And uh, what we're trying to do is um, we're going to be gathering together a group of leaders and um, pastors, leaders, and uh, theologians to do in our day what they did in 87 when they formed this group. We're going to make a statement, a consensus statement on uh, transgenderism and homosexuality. That meeting is going to occur this summer. But what that's going to do is, is once we get this consensus statement done, it's going to redirect and the focus officially of our organization to provide resources and tools for churches to think through these things. Because as I said before, a lot of churches, they're just struggling for, a lot of them are struggling for confessional language, frankly. What are we supposed to say and believe about these things? We haven't thought about them before. Like this brother was saying right here, I never heard of this before. That's kind of where a lot of people are. And so we're trying to figure out a way to help churches and ministries. So we're coming up with this statement. Hopefully I'll have more news on that this summer. And then um, we're going to be providing our website, cbsexuality.org, is going to have resources, articles um, on all these topics that will be helpful and useful to people and we'll be continuing to uh, do these conferences. Hi, my name's Keith. Um, how do you, or recommendations or strategies on dealing, in particular in California, <clears throat> with laws on sex education now, promoting the acceptance of the transgender community? It's no longer sex ed about body parts. It's sex ed about culture identity and a lot of parents don't even know that they're signing off on this when their kids enter the public school system. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is not a culture war thing. <laughs> uh, it's not a, a political remedy. Okay. I think that Christians have an important role to play in the political situation in the communities in which they live. We need to be a part of that. That's important. But the first thing I want to say is, is that as the church, we're going to have to start being the church. We're going to have to be a counterculture in the midst of a culture that's running away from what God has revealed about some very basic things. So, and what I mean by that is we're going to have to be reflecting in this community that we know what male and female is. And we're going to have to be discipling our children that we know what male and female is and what that implies about what God wants them to be and to do as they grow up. So um, we're going to have to be a counterculture, which means we're going to have to be catechizing our children because get this, the culture is already catechizing your children. And if you are not actively engaged in discipling within the church and within your homes on manhood and womanhood, you're, you're, you're done. Um, the, the, the forces in the culture right now are too much and you are already being overwhelmed. Your children are being overwhelmed by this. 
They're going to hear a certain thing in public schools. They're going to hear a certain thing when they turn on Disney. Um, they're going to hear it everywhere. They're being catechized. And so the church is going to have to be the church and actually teach some very basic things, which means every person in this room, every adult in this room, you're going to need to know what manhood and womanhood is, biblically speaking. And you're going to have to be able to train children in that, in your homes and, in, and then into the church. So I'm, I'm really concerned about this because I, there seems to be a cloud in a lot of people's minds when it comes to these issues. It's just um, people don't know what to think about these things and that can't stand going forward. We've got to know what transgender is and then we've got to know what the Bible says about it. We've got to know what homosexuality is and we've got to know what the Bible says about it. And we've got to be able to communicate that to the next generation. So um, I'm really concerned that we are are discipling and uh, I think we've had a failure of that uh, for far too long and we're going to have to we're playing catch up so this will be a we'll see how see how I end up um, if we take sexual attraction out of the equation and in, in light of singleness um, what so if We've talked a lot about marriage and our roles within marriage and, and gender within that. We take that out of the equation. Um, what is the purpose of manhood and womanhood and how does personality, personality fit into that? And if we're talking about the uh, having a distinction between man and women and how we dress in the Old Testament, that being confirmed of what your role is, um, and the culture is defining what that looks like. Um, what's, what is the definition of manhood and womanhood outside of those marriage sexual preference parameters? And then how do we, how do you act? Yeah, that's a great question. And frankly, just as a, a guy who teaches in a seminary and who writes on these things, I think we have a, a long way to go in defining that. <laughs> Um, I'm going to say a couple of things, but I'll let you know that there's a book coming out by Alistair Roberts. He's an independent researcher in the UK. He's really thoughtful, though. But he's coming out with a book um, by Crossway that answers this question. What's essential manhood and womanhood when you're not talking about it within the context of the covenant of marriage or within the covenant, of commu- the covenant community? So we've done a good job up until now in defining manhood and womanhood in those two contexts. Okay, because here's the thing. Um, you've heard a lot about submission in marriage or leadership in marriage, how, however you want to say it. Well, does that mean that all women are supposed to submit to all men? Well, it does not mean that. Okay, if it doesn't mean that, then what, what is this? Okay, you can't reduce manhood and womanhood to submission and authority. That's not the only thing that it is. That, that is a particular obligation within the covenant of marriage, isn't it? Okay, but what about the single woman? What does womanhood look like? Um, one thing I would say is, is that uh, what we, we see in scripture is um, when you see uh, formation of children and when you see what the Bible teaches about how parents are supposed to parent, um, we understand that not everybody is going to end up getting married, but what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be raising children that understand and are capable of entering into marriages, <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to end up getting married. But it does mean that if I'm, I have a little boy, 
I, I have to raise him to think in terms of, uh, you need to learn how to be not beholden to all these cultural ideas about what manhood are, but you do need to learn, son, what it means to lead and what it means to protect and what it means to provide. Because those are your main covenant obligations if you do indeed get married. And they're only, they're distinctly your obligations. So I am, even if he's not getting married, now, even, I don't know what's going to happen to him in the future, but I do know that I need to form him to be prepared for it. And so raising him as a male is going to be raising him to be a leader and a protector and a provider. Does that make sense? Um, so that's what would be distinctive. And it's different from, say, what I'm doing with, with, with my daughters and in, in, in getting them to think about what their uh, covenant obligations are to marriage. Um, but there, I think there are differences between male and female, and um, those have to be recognized. And they're defined in part by our covenant obligations, but it's not only that. Your question is the not only that. Um, the one thing I would say in, in connection to this, this talk is, um, in the scripture, you do have an insistence that male and female, the sexual, there's a distinction between the sexes, and there's an, an insistence that you don't blur that in the way that you present. And that's going to change from culture to culture. So I, there's another text I didn't mention, but uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about hair length. A woman's hair is her glory, and the man's hair is supposed to be shorter, her hair is supposed to be longer. But when you read, it doesn't tell you how long or how short. <laughs> it's a culturally encoded definition. The thing that's normative is not the hair length, but the distinction between male and female, which was being um, distorted by these, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Gender-bending uh, uh, presentations in terms of the wearing of the hair. So one thing that is transcultural is we have to make sure we maintain the distinction and we don't blur sexual distinctions by the way that we're, we're presenting. Do we have time? I, Rick, I'm going to leave it up to you because I don't... We do have a little bit of time left. Okay. We have, can we take a couple more questions? So, Marcus, why don't you... Hello, my name is Marcus. Um, my question is a little bit different, I guess. We talked a lot about sharing the truth in love, um, like post-surgery and post... No pre-surgery and pre-people um, making the final decision um, after all of this mental suffering or just the need and want or desire to be a different gender. So how do we share the truth in love post-surgery or post-sex change or post-gender identity switch? That's a great question. It's one everyone always asks because what if somebody comes to Christ um, after they've had a sex change surgery, what does repentance look like for them? How do we share the gospel with somebody who's post-sex change? What, what are we going to tell them the obligations of the gospel are laying upon them? What does repentance look like for them? So we do have to account for this, right? One thing we need to make sure that we all understand correctly, these surgeries are called uh, sometimes gender reassignment surgery. In the past, they've been called sex change surgeries. We just need to realize that a person doesn't actually become the other sex after these surgeries. They don't get the reproductive capacity of the other sex. They, what you have is the same sex that's now been surgically mutilated, um, that's been surgically reformed, but they don't actually become the other sex, okay? They're just externally made to look that way. I was just reading a story yesterday about a guy, I think he's in Australia, I think it was Australia. He's identifying as an elf. 
And so he's had all these facial surgeries to reshape his face to look elvish. He's gotten these implants making pointy ears. He's not an elf, okay? He's a man who's mutilating his body through surgeries, okay? So just because you're identifying a certain way and you're surgically reshaping your body doesn't make you that thing. Um, you don't ever inherit the procreative capacity of the opposite sex after these surgeries. And I will say this, those surgeries are painful and dangerous sometimes. And they don't, it's not like you just, I don't want to get into it because it's, it's not polite. I don't think in mixed company, but I mean, some things that are made have to be maintained or else they heal up. It's just, it's, it's horrific in many ways. Um, so the surgeries don't actually make you the opposite sex because you're not. You are what you are. Your chromosomes stay the same. So the question is, what do we say to people who've already post-transitioned? Well, since you need, what we're going to tell them is, is that you need to be who God made you to be. Sadly, you've maybe done some things to your body that may not be reversible. Some people say, do you have to have a, a surgery to try to reverse things? We just need to know some things you can't undo. And um, that doesn't mean that a person can't come to Christ, though. It does mean, in spite of whatever surgical things have happened to them, they need to identify as the sex that God made them to be. So repentance is going to look like turning from an identity that was a false one at the outset and turning to the identity that God gave them at, at their birth. That's what repentance is going, to, is going to look like. Does that mean you have to have a surgery? I don't think surgery is prohibited. If you can fix something, it's going to be different for different people. Um, but I don't think you have to have it in order to, uh, in order to repent. Okay, we have time probably for just one last question. A while back, I had to deal, we can were I, dealing with... Can I say one last thing before you ask your question? Don't forget Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. These people who were castrated and their reproductive capacity removed as a result of something that happened to them. Um, this, is, this guy was converted. He didn't have to have things put back together in order to become a Christian. Does that make sense? Okay, sorry, go ahead. Um, what about um, when it's like XXY, and I forget the details, but we were actually born with biologically both genitals, is my understanding. In those specific situations, is that person allowed to choose, in a sense, which one they decide to go forward with? Um, I know it's kind of rare, but that uh, question was given to me a while back, and it was kind of hard to figure out how to respond to that. Yeah. That's a great question, and it's actually really important theologically because we're taking our point of departure that there's a fundamental distinction of the sexes biologically. What, and so you have either male or female. You have male anatomy or female anatomy, one or, one or the other. And what you're talking about is people whose presentation doesn't fit. So transgenderism is one thing. That's where the biological situation is clear, but there's a the mind feels out of sync with a clear biological situation. What do you do with the people where the biological situation isn't clear? There is a certain percentage of children that are born where, you know, for most people, a baby's born and the doctor can just look down and say it's a boy or it's a girl. There's a certain percentage where it's not clear. There is um, what 
they call ambiguous genitalia. And typically, not always, but typically it's due to chromosomal abnormalities, which is what you just talked about. The male chromo sex chromosome pattern is XY. The female chromosome sex pattern is XX. What do you do if there's an XXY, there's an extra X? What do you do if there's three X's? There's actually a, a whole range of different abnormalities and that define different conditions. Um, the group of conditions are called intersex conditions. Intersex is an umbrella term that defines a number of different disorders of sex development that happens at the earliest stages of life. And so the question becomes, um, these cases are often brought out to say, look, you're saying that there's a sexual binary. Well, these people show now there's a male, female, and then some people in between. Um, and so it's used to disprove what the Bible is saying about these things. Now, the response to that is, well, actually, they're the exceptions that kind of prove the norm. In a, in a fallen world, we, we would expect that there could be physical abnormalities. That's different than transgenderism, where the physical is clear, but the mind is out of sync with the physical. There are some people who are born, sadly, with abnormalities, and it does make things unclear. I would say this, however. Um, we do know that the, the decisive factor that makes a male of the species is the Y chromosome, and in particular, the SRY gene on the Y chromosome is kind of the switch that flips on and off. And so, the, if there's, my view is if there's a Y chromosome anywhere, then you would not want to treat that child as a female. If there's a Y chromosome anywhere, that's the decisive factor, no matter how many X's you got. So, um, so that's the, the ma masculinizing factor. Now, sometimes the masculine traits can be suppressed, but that's the underlying, the underlying chromosomal uh, reality. Um, there was a, a doctor back in the 1950s named John Money who pioneered a treatment protocol for children born with intersex conditions. Now, he actually did it on somebody he shouldn't have done it on, but... Um, his story is really sad, but basically the treatment protocol is it was for years for these intersex babies who were born. If there was some ambiguity of the genitalia, the doctors and the parents would take a look. They would see what's possible surgically and they would pick a sex and they would try to reshape the genitals to fit whatever they picked and then raise that child to be whatever they picked. And the reason they did that was because they had this worldview that gender was just a social construct and kids will just be whatever you tell them to be, right? Well, the problem was a lot of these kids grew up. They didn't pay attention to the chromosomes, in other words. The problem was a lot of these kids grow up and felt themselves to be other than what their parents and the doctor picked. And by that time, they had already been surgically changed. And it, it created huge conflicts. I think the problem there was they were ignoring the, the chromosomal realities. I had a youth minister come up to me and ask me this very question for a kid in his youth group. This was happening too. And so you have to be very careful about that. So intersex, the intersex conditions don't prove, um, are not evidence of God's intent for the world. They're evidence of the brokenness of the world because of sin. And um, it's... Um, they're very difficult. And um, I'll say one more thing. Jesus said in Matthew 19, when he was talking about marriage, he talked about that, um, you know, the, the disciples were saying, well, if marriage is like that, we should never get married. He says, well, that's not for everybody, only for those who can accept it. And um, he said, 
he talked about eunuchs. He said, some people are made eunuchs by men, which means they're castrated and put into the king's harem. Some people make themselves, uh, excuse me, some people are eunuchs from birth. Some people make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, which I think doesn't mean that they castrate themselves, but that they stay uh, celibate. But he said, some people are eunuchs from birth. Which I think is Jesus saying he knows about intersex conditions. He knows that there are some people who are born with abnormalities in their sexual uh, reproductive organs. He still says that they can fit in the kingdom. In other words, even if you can't get to the bottom of the chromosomal reality, which is the case in the third world and in every generation before the modern era, (laughs) even if you have to live with some ambiguities not knowing the sexual situation, there is a path of faithfulness and discipleship to Jesus where you wait and you find what is unclear now, it becomes clear in the age to come, but you can still be a disciple of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the way you have blessed your church and, and have raised up within the church, uh, in the body of Christ, men and women to help us think about these issues. Father, we pray that as we've spent the last seven or eight hours together thinking about this, it wouldn't just be for this weekend, but we've set a trajectory on thinking of how we can more effectively love our neighbors as ourselves, how we can more effectively bring the gospel, the clarity and sensibility of the gospel message to a culture that is tragically confused. Lord, help us not to have a triumphalistic spirit that we have the answers and they don't. As Denny said, may our hearts be moved with compassion. May they break for the tragedy and sadness we see around us. Lord, the gospel has the hope and we are looking at a culture, a world that is falling apart at the seams. Lord, we have the hope in Christ. Give us the love and the joy to share it with them. Give us the confidence and the boldness that you are working powerfully. And we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.